tonight we are jumping back into our discussion of essential truths that every Christian or every Christ follower must believe. And this was initially entitled 99 Essential Truths. And simply because we probably won't tackle all 99, although we may touch on all 99, we actually might have a few more than we might talk about. And so, Essential Truths is probably a good title. But tonight we are furthering our conversation in Revelation. Not the book of Revelation. Uh, if you want to get into the book of Revelation, we're working through that book on our Sunday night small group. So, and we're almost through with that. So you're still welcome to join us on that. But tonight we're talking about revelation in the sense of general revelation and special revelation. And in particular, the aspect of special revelation being the the Bible, the scriptures that we, that we read and that we hold. Uh, as you would imagine, there has been a long history of folks, people who have come against the Bible, even who consider themselves to be Christians. In the day of what they call German high criticism of the Bible, uh, they would take an attempt to analyze the Bible uh, with an attempt to almost take the myth out of the Bible or any supernatural elements that might be in in Scripture. Now, they would say that the Bible is full of myth as to where we would not, but it certainly has elements about the supernatural and what we would consider the metaphysical, things that that you can't necessarily put your hands on and see. And so... Over the, over the years, there have been an attempt to water down the word. Um, if you don't believe me, go to a church that says that they value the word of God and they value the Bible and see how much they actually preach out of it. And that tells you a lot about their pulpit ministry and the ministry of the church. If you don't actually teach the Bible, if you don't actually preach the Bible, do you really believe in what they call sola scriptura. Do you really believe in scripture alone? I mean, do you believe that God's word is God's word? And so we might say that we do, but do we actually act like it? Do we actually live out like we believe that what God has given to us is his infallible and inerrant word and that we fall under that authority as his people? So that's what we're going to talk about tonight and particularly the inspiration of Scripture. And so, if I was to say to you, how would you describe something that is inspirational? What would you say? Hallmark movie? <laughs> something that gives you the um, butterflies? Something that moves you to happiness or joy? What would be inspiration something that is inspirational something that is inspired now we use that word in our bible in fact the king james translates this word we'll go look at in a moment for um, god breathed and actually it's almost a mis misinterpretation or a mistranslation uh, it is more than just inspired 
For something to be inspired means that something is moved. And the actual word that is used there is, has the Greek word for God in that word. So it's not just simply inspired, it is God moved. God moved it. And so we're going to look at that tonight. So let me ask you this, is God's word reliable? What says the church? Yeah. And so how would you, how would you, how would you um, handle this question if somebody on the street said, I don't believe God's word is reliable. Do you? Well, yeah. And why do you believe God's word is reliable? And what would you say? Most, most of the time you'll hear folks say, well, I know that the Bible is reliable because the Bible says it's reliable. Do you see the circular kind of reasoning there? Well, the Bible's reliable because it says it's reliable. And, and although, I mean, I agree that your Bible is, is um, sharper than any two-edged sword, you know, and that it's trustworthy, it's breathed out by God. Although I believe that, uh, what might we say to those folks who doubt the validity of God's word. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story and I may have mentioned this I can't remember if I mentioned it to y'all or not but anyway I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Tracy's brother has uh, he was in a hospital for a while as you know and he was working through some uh, issues breathing, uh, COPD really bad and he was in a hospital for, for a little while, and he came out, and he, start, he started reading his Bible. He started reading the Bible. He told Tracy that he has made it right with the Lord, and so I don't know exactly what that looks like because I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk with him yet to know what he means by that, but he's been reading his Bible, and so much so that he's been reading his Bible at work, and he works at Home Depot, and so, I mean... Regardless of what society might tell you, you can read your Bible. I mean, you can even read your Bible in school. Don't ever let anyone tell you you can't bring your Bible to school and read it. Anyway, he's reading his Bible in his break room, and somebody comes up to him and says, um, Do you believe all of that stuff in the Bible? You believe all that myth in the Bible that you're reading? Something to that effect. And he's like, He said, Yeah, man, I used to believe that too. I used to think that way, but if you read it, if you read through and really have an eye and ear to see, or a, an eye to see and ear to hear, he didn't put it like that. He said, but, but um, you'll see that it's true too. And so that really does tell me that if you read God's word looking for truth, you'll find truth. You will find truth. Sometimes we might not like it. Some, sometimes the, the lost, I mean, they're not going to read it unless God opens up their heart and mind to see it and to understand it, and unless they're quickened and awakened and, and, and made alive, then, then they're not going to know it as absolute truth like we would. But you'll, you will be able to see that there's a cohesiveness about God's Word, and we'll see some of that tonight. So we would say, yeah, God's Word is reliable, but we want to dig into some 
tangible things too as to why the Bible is reliable other than well the Bible says so okay so in what ways and we mentioned just a few of those all right well first place that we would go if we were to look at scripture would be 2 Timothy 3:16 and in this verse it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching reproof correction and for training in righteousness so Every area of life that, that we need wisdom, discernment, how to live out life is found in God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean that there's everything spelled out 100% um, explicitly. There is some implication. There is some implying that is involved in areas. So you, the Bible isn't going to tell you how to balance your checkbook. I mean, it's not going to tell you how to... Well, it will tell you how to pay off your debts. It does mention about, about not owing your creditors. You know, but it will lead you in all areas of life as, um, you know, as, you, as you walk in this life. It will lead you to be a good steward, you know, whatever the area is of your life. But we know it's for teaching, for rebuke or correction, and for training in righteousness, meaning... That God's word is how we reach a level of maturity. Training in righteousness, a level of maturity as we walk with the Lord. Um, okay, so let's, let's uh, look at another, another verse. I mentioned this earlier, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and of the spirit and the joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no other work, a book of antiquity, sacred uh, sacred uh, letters, sacred quote-unquote scripture uh, that boast of being alive and active. It is God's very word. No other religious text can boast of this. It is only God's word. It is almost as if, I, if you read this verse about God's word, and as you, you'll see this too, as you read God's word, it's almost in some times, some places in our life, is as if the Holy Spirit serves up your very intentions before you, even when you, even when you didn't know your own deepest, darkest, uh, dark corners of your own life. And so it's almost as if the, the word of God has... The way, the way of doing that and showing you your own deficiencies and your sin and so um, cuts in and cuts out alright so that describing God's word and that's all good Psalm 119 I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you this is of course King David on the longest psalm the longest chapter in the Bible Psalm 119. I stored it up. It's, it's, I've collected. I have meditated on God's word. So is, is reading the Bible important? Yeah. Is, is storing it up in your heart and mind important? Yeah. Why? So I will not sin against you. All right, so let's talk about this for a minute. What is inspiration of Scripture? 
I would have probably used a different term for this instead of inspiration, but I do use this term uh, simply because it shows up in the King James, it shows up in the um, American Standard Version, not the New American Standard, but American Standard Version. It shows up as inspiration. And so I use it in here in this title. What does inspiration mean? So let's look at that. All right, so inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture refers to God's direction of the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded his messages to humankind in their original writings. So I read 2 Timothy 3, 16 to you already, and we'll come back to 2 Peter here in a moment, chapter 1. Um, so let's look at that statement for a minute. Inspiration of Scripture. This is God directing the human author. So how many, um, when you read the book of James, as you're reading through, that you can feel the, or you can sense the author's tone, attitude, and demeanor? Can you sense James's his demeanor, the way he the way he is, maybe his attitude in life? I get the sense when I read James, he is very um, matter of fact, which all of God's word is matter of fact. But he seems very like, well, if you're going to do this, I'm going to call you out. James is one of those books you read that it's going to call you out. Okay, so when you read certain books of the Bible, you get the sense of the author's attitude um, and their personalities flow through. God is still using them, but their personalities flow through them. Um, there's a term for that, and we often use when God will use their attitude and they'll write and use their situations in life to, uh, to make his word known. Uh, but it used to be thought that these verses that we'll read here in a moment, that these authors of the Bible would, would simply take a piece of paper and they were almost like possessed. And as they had, and as they were scribing this out, God took over their whole body and they just, just wrote. Of course, we don't hold to that um, because God used them and their personalities and their demeanors and everything he didn't just like use their hand and then they wrote and were moved in that way and so and I actually and I think the reason for this it actually helps to add validity and authenticity to the Bible by God using human authors and we'll talk about that in a moment okay all right Inspiration, the word inspiration is only found, at least in my translations, in the King James and, as I mentioned, the Revised Standard Version. It is not in the, it's not used in the ESV, which is what I use mostly. Um, the word actually comes from the word theonoustos. So you can see that first word there, thea, thea, theo which actually theos, and then noustos would be a variation of the spirit or breath. So this is God breathed. 
But nobody's going to walk around and say that Greek word. So you will say, well, God breathed as the ESV translates it. I'm just trying to figure out why, what, what translators were thinking when they used the word inspired instead of God breathed. When the, when the root for God is there in the word anyways. Because inspira- anything can be inspiration. I mean, I mentioned Hallmark movies. Some people are inspired by Hallmark movies. They're moved in some way. That doesn't mean that God moved them. And so, that, the, more accurate ins- the more accurate rendering of this is God breathed. <clears throat> okay, so what scriptures is Paul referring to um, in... Second Timothy. What scriptures is Paul referring to? Referring to the Old Testament. Because they didn't have a canon of, of scripture. They didn't have a closed collection of books in the New Testament yet. Uh, and so the books that Paul is referring to are the Old Testament collection of books that was that was um, called as complete by Jesus himself. When Jesus, remember the road to Emmaus? Okay. The road to Emmaus. And Jesus said, the scriptures testify of him through the, through the law, the prophets, and the writings. He's showing that the Old Testament Hebrew canon or rule of scripture is complete. Okay, so the Old Testament has been has already been inspired. Has already been set. But we haven't had a collection put in place of the New Testament as of yet. We have at this point, we have a few, we have some writings. We have the, the writings of Paul, and particularly in, in first, what we consider 1 Corinthians 15. This Corinthian creed was already being written uh, or wrote. Uh, you have... Probably the book of Mark. Mark is the is the oldest New Testament gospel account. And so the scriptures that Paul was referring to as God's God breathed is the Old Testament. When they preached Jesus, okay, they preached first what they saw firsthand as apostles, that we saw him alive. But before they did that, they reasoned from the Old Testament. What do you think that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved? And he walks through. What do you think Stephen preached from when he walks through this cloud of witnesses that Stephen preaches about and says, Oh yeah, by the way, you crucified your Messiah. You killed your Messiah. They, They are reasoning from the Old Testament. Old Testament scripture. Since the only canon of Scripture in existence was the Old Testament, Paul is referring to the Old Testament, the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. So here's these verses in Second Peter, chapter one. It says that we have the prophetic word. What's the prophetic word? Well, the Old Testament. Uh, the prophetic word, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So this is 
revelation, speaking of, of revealing, shining a light on, giving revelation. And it's interesting that it speaks about a lamp shining in darkness, a prophetic word more confirmed, that everything in the old points to the New Testament, and everything in the New Testament points to the Old Testament. So it's all stitched together. God's word is stitched together. Again, we're, we're funneling into the reliability of the Bible and we're funneling uh, into the cohesiveness of the Bible too. When you sit down to read a novel, I don't know, Miss June was in the library earlier and I don't know what you were reading, but I imagine you didn't just open whatever book you were reading and point and say, I'm going to start here. You probably had something in mind you were going to read. We don't read the Bible that way. Well, at least we shouldn't. We should think of the Bible as a whole. With the new complementing the old and the old complementing the new. And how they all come together to demonstrate this is God's word. This is exactly what God wants us to know of himself. And so, so he's talking about the Old Testament. Uh, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Have you ever heard a bad interpretation of scripture? Well, yeah. You ever heard somebody take God's word and twist it to say something they want to make it say? Yeah. So how do we get around this? <clears throat> if If what is the standard of interpretation for the Bible? When you sit down to, because every one of us in here are an interpreter of God's word. You interpret. But what is the guiding force? What is the shining light of interpretation? There's a, there's guideposts. There's a, there's ways to interpret. But what is it? How do we interpret Scripture? Holy Spirit, yeah. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. So if I want to know something about what Peter is saying, or Stephen is saying, or preaching, then he's number one, he's going to tell you, and you'll be able to look at the Old Testament, you'll be able to look at other places of Scripture and interpret that. And so... I have seen God's word used as a weapon, as a hammer, as a hammer <clears throat> and that was actually hurting people instead of helping them grow in their faith, and hurting families, hurting people, and um, <clears throat> that's not that's not what God's word is intended to do. It's not intended to hurt people. It'll be used like a hammer to come down. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> So I don't want to get into all of that. But. And then verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this is also where we would use a variation of inspired, at least at this sense, to be carried along, to be moved along. So they are carried along uh, along by the Holy Spirit. 
moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay. All right, then as you finish those verses, well, these verses in 2 Peter at 3.14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Now, the waiting for these is the coming of the Lord. The end of the, the end of time. The, the, when the Lord will return. Okay, so he says, while you're waiting for this to happen, while you're waiting for these things to come to pass, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and to be at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now here's where it gets interesting. As he does in all of his letters. So Paul is writing. Okay, and they recognize that Paul is writing letters. And these are these will be considered inspired or God breathed. He says he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in, in them that are hard to understand. Have you ever read the Bible and found some things hard to understand? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, things that you need, you, you need other scripture to help you understand. Uh, which the ignorance and unstable twist. That's, that is adding their own interpretation. Uh, to uh, and, they, and they twist it, unstable, they twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so Peter is counting for the Apostle Paul's letters and his writings as scripture all right, and inspired. So this is where we pull in what we know in the New Testament. And there's criteria that we will eventually walk through as to why did they choose these certain books to go in the Bible? What was the criteria for that? Um, you know, what, what constituted uh, an inspired book of the Bible? And there is criteria for that. You know, and there is this later discussion, but one of the main things that a, would, a book would be considered as inspired or God breathed would be, well, they had to have first-hand account. All right, they had to have a first-hand account, meaning they were an apostle. Uh, it had to be well-circulated. It couldn't say something of Jesus that was not cohesive and true, like in the Gnostic Gospels. And so there's criteria, and we'll, we'll get to that later once we start talking about um, some other issues in in the realm of inspiration or um, infallibility of God's word. Okay, so this finishes out that, se that longer segment of inspiration of scripture. There's occasionally this inspiration was achieved through diction, meaning God breathed it, they wrote it, where God spoke directly to the original authors. Most of the time, however, this inspiration was achieved through the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit through the personalities of the authors so that their writings can be considered the very words of God. So I mentioned James because he comes, he, he comes to, to mind. But you can, also see, you can also see it in the Apostle Paul's writing. So let me, I, I don't have this in the slide, but let me pull this up for you real quick. So the Apostle Paul the beginning of Galatians. So he's writing a generally warm 
beginning of a letter. You know, he says, Paul, from Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, not through man, from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches at Galatia. Now in Acts, the apostle Paul is still traveling around in Galatia. That's where we're at. He's still traveling. In fact, we'll see some of this Sunday. He's still traveling around Galatia. They've opened up the letters and read to the Gentile believers there. You don't have to be circumcised into that. They were no doubt rejoicing. And all the brothers who are with me to churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Standard writing of the Apostle Paul, um, words of encouragement right from the get-go. It's almost like you want to, this is almost like the, the bless your heart moment, you know. He's buttering him up, and then he drops in verse 6. So, do you think the tone of the author comes out? Absolutely. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and all turning to a different gospel. He didn't waste any time jumping into this. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the, go the gospel of Christ. So obviously the, he, he was a bit upset about this and I'm not going to read through this, but you can sense his personality. Uh, the apostle Paul was a go-getter. I mean, he was the kind of person that was zealous and you think if God did not call him from the road to Damascus and off the road to Damascus, there's no, uh, there's no telling the amount of damage that the Apostle Paul would have done to the early church. But God called him by his sovereignty and saved him and turned him the other way and used him for the kingdom. But you can still see a sense of this, this kind of righteous indignation, being angry for the right reasons. All right, so... And so, yeah, God spoke to and through the original authors or personalities came out. Um, and I think this actually helps to add some validity and authenticity to the Bible. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I don't believe the Bible because it was written by man. You ever heard anybody say that? It was written by man. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, man might have wrote it, the authors. The Bible says they did when God breathed through them. And they wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. But the issue is, if it was just strictly man left to his own devices to write, don't you think that he would have made himself look a little better in the Bible? On every page and every character... The human author always looks as if they are not very smart, dull sometimes, sinful, messes up all the time, trips, falls. If I was going to write a story and, about God and I was going to include myself, I'm going to be right there with him if I'm going to make that story up. I'm going to make myself look good. 
um, but that doesn't happen. Every character in the Bible is stained with sin, every one. Job, it says, it hated evil, but what did, he, what did Job do? He sacrificed to the Lord. He made sacrifices, so he knew he was sinful. What did Mary do? She sacrificed to the Lord. Any character in the Bible, even the Bible might say they hated sin and pushed away from it. They still had sin in their life. All right, so anyway, what makes the Bible unique? I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about this, and we'll finish up. What makes the Bible unique? Somebody said to you, hey, I'd read the Bible if I knew it was different than any other document, if it was different than any other ancient book, religious book. And Thomas alluded to this earlier about comparing other books together. And I've got a chart for us to look at here in a moment. What makes the Bible unique? What makes it different? Why should we trust it? Okay, here's a few things I want to share with you. And I think I missed number one. Uh, anyway, uh, the geographical locations in which the Bible was written span three continents. The Bible was written between Africa, Asia, and Europe. And the Bible was written in great variety of places such as hillside, palaces, and prisons. So it was written all across the known world at the time. Not only that, there was 44 different authors. 44 different authors that wrote particular pieces that is considered inspiration or God-breathed. And I think that was my point number one. <laughs> Am I missing something here? I think I'm missing something. Anyway. Um, <laughs> more people have read the Bible or parts of it than any other book so the Bible I, as far as I know is still on the top seller list still the top selling book in all the world so it makes it unique in that regard uh, people throughout the ages have attacked the Bible Yet long after they have been forgotten, the Bible remains the most powerful influence for all that is right, just, and good. This goes back to Hebrews 4.12, that God's word cuts to the very heart and mind and displays in front of us our own intentions. Sometimes we don't even know our heart and mind, and yet God does. Have you ever been sitting in a, a worship service or reading a Bible and then God convicts you of a sin or reveals that sin? And you're like, well, I didn't even realize it was that deep. I didn't realize I was wrapped up in it like that. And so, so yeah, even though critics have tried to attack it They've tried to burn the Bible. They've tried to destroy the Bible. And yet it, it still survives. And the most powerful influence in a person's life. I mean, the world don't care about, really, honestly, how many, how many Quran burnings do you ever see? How many times do you, 
Would you, would you find them burning some Islamic text? I, I don't ever, ever remember seeing a book burning in a, outside of a Buddhist temple. I'll never see those things. So, in a nutshell, the Bible was written over 15 centuries by over 40 authors in different places and times, different continents, in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, such as in Daniel, different styles, and yet has one central unified theme. What is that one central unified theme? And, and you can answer this in many ways, but it is still the same thought. What is the one central? You know, I've given this much thought over the years. If you had to have one central unified theme or thought about the Bible and maybe a little tight, concise statement, what would it be? You ever thought about that? You ever try to do that? What would it be? And I think he helps us a bit here with the relationship between mankind and God has been broken because of sin and distorted because of sin. So the one central thing would be we are lost. Mankind is lost. We need a savior. His name, his name is Jesus. That would be it. All right. And so... So between mankind and the only living God expressed in his offering of salvation through the Lord Jesus. So that would be the one central theme. From the New Testament, our Old Testament, it points to, to the new and is fulfilled through in Christ. And then the, the old points back into the new. So that's all stitched together. Again, you have 40 different authors on different continents, three different languages, and they all point to the one, to one same thing over all the years and all the different uh, areas and all that of life and yet it comes together like it does okay <clears throat> so we were talking about this a little early what makes the Bible unique well one of the things that, that makes the Bible God's word unique is that the, the, the time frame that passed and the years that have passed when it was actually written and, and the closeness to the actual events. For instance, the book of Mark was written 44 to six, 40, in 44 A.D. to 64 A.D., somewhere in that time frame, after the events in the gospel. So that's pretty close. So, so you get a bit about a good 30 years span. And that's the earliest. And the Bible boasts of having over 10,000 manuscripts. Okay. So the other books of antiquity that I'm going to look at here in a moment, uh, you can see the variations there. Okay, so the Bible alone boasts of the earliest manuscripts. Now this is, this was a, a revised version of this, 125 A.D., the earliest manuscripts. The gap of time. See the gap of time there? That is the most significant thing about this is that 
a 30-year gap of time for the actual events that have happened since the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection. 30 years had passed, and then they wrote it into, they wrote it into um, a, a book. They wrote, put it in, in Scripture. Well, you can see all the other books of antiquity, Tacitus, you see Herodotus histories. This, is, this boasts of being a historical book, and yet it's a 250-year gap between the actual events and then what Herodotus wrote. Plato, 200 years. Um, Homer's Iliad is one that is used often. 400 years before the actual events that are recorded in the Iliad. Um, and I think it was the Peloponnesian War, that kind of stuff, but... In that, I mean, it's 400 years before those, after those events when we actually get a, a manuscript. And even in that, you see there's 1,900 manuscripts in existence of Homer's Iliad. I got a co copy of Homer's Iliad in there in my, in my office. Um, but then you get to the Bible and you have, this is a bit of an older number, but 5,856 is actually more close to 10,000 manuscripts in existence of the New Testament, just the New Testament. And so, and this comes from Josh McDowell, uh, evidence that demands a verdict, updated version of this. So you can see that if you press it up against the actual events, the Bible is more trustworthy, uh, more reliable than any other work of antiquity. That you will that you'll read. Not only that, it's God breathed. So is the Bible trustworthy? Absolutely. Okay, so that's our discussion on inspiration or God breathed scripture, God breathed the word. Uh, reliable, and I think we all can. We would walk out of here today. Yeah, we all believe God's word is inspired, God breathed out. But I think the question, and might be nagging sometimes, is if there is a person who boasts of being a follower in Christ, is is the belief in the Bible being one hundred percent? God breathe is that an essential truth that every Christian must believe? Can a person be a believer and not believe the Bible? might be some people that would say, well, you know, I, I believe in just this part of the Bible, the part that talks about Jesus dying on the cross. I don't, we don't really go back to the Old Testament. And there are people like that. There are people that do that. Um, there's people who say, well, you don't need to read your Bible until Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 9. You don't need the Old Testament. You don't need the gospel accounts. You just pick up in Acts 9 and everything from there is what you need. <laughs> I 
Yeah. You know, I, 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 without trying to sound too judgmental, and I hope this doesn't sound too judgmental, but sometimes I just think it's just sheer laziness. Lord, forgive me if I'm being judgmental. But hey, if I don't want to invest in reading in the New Testament, I could just say it don't matter anymore. It happens in the world of missions when people say, well, what we call hyper-Calvinist. Well, we're not going to go evangelize. We're not going to go there because God already knows. He's called them for heaven and some for hell. And because of that, we don't need to go out and evangelize. That's just laziness. So, and there's people who predominantly, who, who consider themselves Baptist, who would say, well, we don't need to read it and study the Old Testament anymore. you don't they just probably go somewhere else gloss over it when in fact I think if I'm not mistaken that Jesus quoted the book of Isaiah more than any other prophetic book, uh, Old Testament book so what do you do when he quotes Isaiah do you not go to Isaiah to, to reference those when Jesus talks about Jonah you know he's in the belly of the earth for three days as Jonah was in the belly of the great the whale, the fish, for three days. Do you not go back and investigate? Okay, I need to refresh. I need to see what this is about. Okay. I need to refresh my mind about the story of Jonah. Anyway. Um, what I would say, yeah, like, like Thomas is saying, yeah, and, and the other Thomas is saying, yeah. I don't think that you can... I don't think that you can actively walk in this life as a, as a follower of Christ and not be convicted that God's word is from end to end and that it is, it's inspired. I don't think that you can hold that position if you're truly indwelt by God's spirit. All right, so let me pray for us. Any questions?